Have you ever wondered what it's like to witness a murder? Forrest grabbed the knife and then just stabbed Johnny in one motion. Or how it feels to be shot. I was immediately hit by a barrage of bullets. Or how you would react if your spouse hired someone to kill you. And he was to put me in a grave with a bullet wound on my head. These are the stories you'll hear on the podcast called What Was That Like? True stories told by the actual person who went through it. You'll hear from a stalking victim. Came back upstairs and when I came back and turned the corner into my room, I saw him standing there. You'll hear from a man who was kidnapped and tortured. I would do anything, say anything, to simply get away. And you'll hear actual 911 calls. Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Real people in unreal situations. Search for What Was That Like on any podcast app or at whatwasthatlike.com. This podcast contains adult themes and language, and some of the things that we discuss may be disturbing to some listeners. In this podcast, we discuss sexual assault, torture, race, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. Bitches, welcome to Fruit Loops episode 128. Bitty Benafi for all my Gryffindor listeners out there. And thank you for listening. <laughs> now, Fruit Loops is a podcast about true crimes committed by people of color and the victims that we don't hear much about. Contrary to popular belief, not all serial killers are straight, cis, white, dudes. What? No! <laughs> there are many well-documented cases of serial killers of color, and Fruit Loops is a podcast all about them. We will take deep dives into the fascinating lives and crimes of serial killers and true crimes committed by people of color and the victims that the media and entertainment come to leave out because the news is racist. Allegedly. And we are Wendy and Beth. She's Wendy. I'm Beth. We're not journalists, investigators, or psychologists. Just a couple of gals interested in true crime. Also, the opinions expressed in this podcast are just that, our opinions. Please send any questions or comments to fruitloopspod at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 602-935-6294. And we may feature it on a future episode. That was a nice podcast. <laughs> That's right. Also... Our website is fruitloopspod.com and we use Fruit Loops Pod for all our social media. The footnotes for each episode can be found on our website. Plus, check it out for the different ways that you can support the show. So, who are we talking about today, Beth? Today we're talking about John Floyd Thomas Jr., an mm. American serial killer convicted of the murders of seven women in the Los Angeles area during the 70s and 80s. He is also suspected of committing many, many more. Seven murders? Santa Maria! <laughs> That's a lot of murders. Uh, but yeah. before we get into it, how you doing? I'm doing good. So uh, this past weekend was the 4th of July. And, Hell yeah. Uh, yeah, so um, I got to 
spend some time with my good friends that live down the street. We went in the pool. We watched oh. the fireworks from their backyard. Everybody nice. was shooting off fireworks every everywhere. So we oh, just my God. sat yes, in the pool they were. and watched the fireworks. <laughs> so that was pretty cool. Cool. Good for you. Was your dog cool with the fireworks um yeah he was all right um Uh the day before on saturday there was a lot of fireworks going on too and uh he was fine as long as he was in the house Mm -hmm. but when i let him out to go potty then he he started barking Mm. (laughs) it was like what the hell's going on out here (laughs) (laughs) yeah i i saw a statistic that um July is when most, like, the numbers of dogs lost Aww. is, like, highest of any other time of wow. year because they, I think they freak out because of yeah. the fireworks. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, we uh, had a nice 4th of July. <laughs> uh it was a nice long weekend and I I ended Friday like, Oh, it was such a good day. I woke up that morning. Uh, I was singing summer madness all morning. And (laughs) there's this part of the song where it goes, (laughs) and I kept doing that. And then my dog, started singing along with me it was amazing yeah and then i accidentally slammed his tail in the laundry room door and then uh the day just went downhill from there he's okay i mean um it was just the tip right and so it was a little bloody so we you know cleaned it up we've been wrapping it and you know disinfecting it and he's he's fine um it just it was so like scary because he's a newer dog right and i've never been afraid of dogs i've never been afraid of pit bulls or bully dogs but he he was he was so surprised about his tail getting fucked up yeah i would be too he was pissed Uh, yeah and uh so i was like Oh my god! I don't know if I could. I don't know if I could do this anymore. But um, he's fine now. And good, good. Yeah. So everybody's happy. Anyway, uh, well, <laughs> glad everybody's doing all right. Hope y'all listening are okay. Yeah. We're gonna dive into some listener letters, but boy, oh boy, hang on a second. Hello, angels. What is in the bag, Beth? Uh, well, we got a. Uh, we got nothing. <laughs> <laughs> we got nothing. There, you know, there's, there's no, there's no letters. Maybe uh, no, no letters. But I wanted no. to say thank you to to Kyra T for your five star review. Oh, so sweet, so yeah. kind. Hip hop air horns. Thank you so much because those really do. That was a uh, hip hop air horn for All you, right. to Kyra, um, because those really do help the show. They do. Um, yeah. Even though people, some like podcast OGs are like they don't really matter, <laughs> but they do. <laughs> Yeah. So they do. anyway, um, so we are so grateful and um, we don't have any new patrons this week, so I'm not going to tire you with any true crime tunes. <laughs> um, but we do want to say thank you just real quick to everybody who's been supporting our show. Yeah. Um, and people who are new to us. We're just um, happy that you're here. So here yeah, are horns to everybody listening. Thank you. And yes. So we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to get into the story when we come back. A detective came and knocked on the door, and I said, is it Renee? And he just gave me that solemn look. It was the worst day ever. The Proof Podcast is back with a new case and a new season. 23 years ago, 18-year-old Renee Ramos went missing. Her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town. 
I don't think that they arrested the right people. It's about time somebody's trying to do something. She had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me damn near my whole life. You can listen now to season two of Proof, wherever you get your podcasts. And follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, did you kill Renee? Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife Maggie and son Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. People don't always realize that physical symptoms like headaches, teeth grinding, and even digestive issues can be indicators of stress. And let's not forget about doom scrolling, sleeping too little, sleeping too much, under eating, and overeating. Okay, so the copy here says to talk about my experience with stress. Oh boy, <laughs> do you have an hour? Uh, where do I begin? <laughs> Work, bills, life, family. I could go podcast. on for a very, yeah, <laughs> podcast, a very long time. And I actually do though, in therapy, which is so helpful for me so I can manage, deal, and get through it. Stress shows up in all kinds of ways and in a world that's telling you to do more, sleep less, and grind all the time. Here's your reminder to take care of yourself, do less, and maybe try some therapy. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's more affordable than in-person therapy. Give it a try and see if online therapy can help lower your stress. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp and Fruit Loop Serial Killers of Color. Listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com fruit. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash fruit. All right, guys, it's it's time for me to come clean. It's okay. it's time for me to tell the truth. Right. It's time for me to spill the beans. Okay. It's time <laughs> to fess up. It's time to keep it a buck. Keep it 100. Are you going to get to it? Oh, uh, yes, yes, yes. So sometimes after dark, I sneak away and play Best Fiends. Others may wonder about my mysterious disappearances. They say, who does she think she is? David Blaine? David Copperfield? I say none of the above. In fact, I'm having so much fun playing Best Fiends. Ever heard of it? Why, yes, I have. <laughs> I love Best Fiends. I love collecting the little monsters when you play so I can level up my fiends. Also, I love going in for the super long matches to free up the board and beat levels. Ooh. I am happy to report that I am on level 440. That's amazing. <laughs> okay, friend, I see you flexing over there. <laughs> now, Best Fiends is a free-to-download mobile puzzle game with thousands of exciting new levels for new adventures and challenges every time you play. I am on level 304. Beth, tell them about the offline play. Yes, of course. <laughs> there <laughs> is offline play, so you don't even need Wi-Fi or the internet. Oh, good. So download your new favorite getaway, Best Fiends, for free today on the App Store or Google Play. You'll even get $5 worth of in-game rewards when you reach level 5. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. So we are back. Remind us, Beth, who is our subject today? Our subject today is John Floyd Thomas Jr., a black serial killer living in the L.A. area during the 70s and 80s. He targeted middle-aged and elderly women who lived alone. 
The 70s and 80s, it just, it was like a heyday for, for serial, serial killers. killers. Yeah. Right? And in it LA was. too, no? Yeah, um, it was like a, it was a party woo! for serial and killers. you get a serial killer. And yeah. you get a serial killer. Everybody gets a serial killer. <laughs> <laughs> so now <laughs> we are going to get into some uh, stats to help us tell the story. <laughs> so... Uh, John Floyd Thomas Jr. was born in Los Angeles on July 26th in 1936. I believe that makes him a cancer. Um, cancer on society, am I right? Um, so <laughs> he has several AKAs, AKA the West Side Rapist, AKA the South Land Strangler, not to be confused with the South Side Strangler, which we have done an episode on. Right. Uh, South Land Strangler, AKA Willie Eugene Wilson, and AKA the most prolific serial killer in Los Angeles. And a little AKA I made up, the killer claims adjuster. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> Watch out, everybody! Watch out! <laughs> uh, <laughs> so uh, his his victims were uh, Rest in Power Queens. Uh, Cora Perry was 79. Maybel Hudson was 80. Ethel Sokoloff was 68 years old. Elizabeth McCune was 67. Uh, Miriam McKinley, 65. Evelyn Bunner, 56. And Adrian Askew was also 56. Uh, the, no, the, the seven known victims were older, lower income white women. Their bodies were found with pillows and blankets over their faces. Um, and he would break into the homes of women who lived alone. He'd rape them and strangle them until they passed out or died. Uh, he is believed to have over 30 rape and murder victims. The span of his crimes date back to the 1950s and November 1972 to June 1986. He was in jail from 1978 to 1983, and there were no, well, no crimes that he committed at that right. point. There that was a pretty high crimes. There were definitely some crimes. <laughs> that was America's crime heyday. Uh, and uh, he was arrested in March of 2009 at the age of 72, and his crimes coincided with those of the Grim Sleeper. And he was sentenced to seven consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole. So now let's get into the setting. Take us there, Beth. The setting is Los Angeles, California. The Chumash, who are believed to have arrived in the Los Angeles area about 3,000 years ago, Whoa. mostly lived in parts of Ventura and Santa Barbara counties, but ranged into the Malibu area of Los Angeles County. The Chumash spent much of their time building small boats and fishing and were accomplished fishermen and artisans. And you know what I always think of when uh, they say Chumash? <laughs> What? What do you think of? A Buffy casino? the Vampire Slayer. How come? Because <laughs> uh, Xander got cursed with a Chumash. Oh, By really? the Chumash. Yeah, you got syphilis. Oh, my God. You don't remember that? No. You know what? And this is, you have brought up numerous Buffy the Vampire <laughs> Slayer references, like, in the past month. Have you been re-watching it? I, I have, yeah. Oh, but, okay. But I remember this, the Chumash thing. <laughs> yeah. Okay, got you, got you. Okay, okay. No, it's been a while. Uh, but I'm, I do, I would like to go back and, and, and refresh it because, again. Yeah. man. And your references, I feel like, <laughs> I feel like this is what it must feel like when I'm talking about like hip hop. Right. Or you're, you're like, what? It's just like, what? What is, okay. Yeah, sure. Okay. <laughs> uh, so I've so, watched uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer like four times through. Shut yeah. up. Wow. <laughs> 
And then do you follow it up with Angel? Yeah, actually, right now I'm watching both. Ooh, I'm going okay. Back, back and forth. <laughs> Mama's got a full plate of programming. Okay. <laughs> yeah, but every time I go through it again, there's stuff that I forgot. So, ah. but I wait. I wait for years before I rewatch it. You know. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, I don't know. Right. Fruit Loops. Fruit Loops. Uh, <laughs> Buffy watch party. Let's yeah. do it. But so, back to the story. Back to the story. Yeah, yeah. So the Gabrieleño are believed to have arrived in Los Angeles in the area from the Mojave Desert more than 2,000 years ago. There were an estimated 5,000 to 10,000 Gabrieleño living in the region when the first Spanish settlers arrived. The Gabrieleño. Good job, gringo. (laughs) The Gabrieleño communities and culture went into rapid decline after the Spanish established the Mission San Gabriel in 1771. The Gabrieleño were Uh increasingly convinced, lured, or even forced into joining the mission, and upon becoming converts, pressed into abandoning their native village, culture, religion, and language. Surprise! Yeah, surprise. um, So I grew up in California, and one thing that they require every Californian child elementary school kid to do is visit the missions. Right. Um, And uh, the way they talked about them when we were kids was, oh, they they saved all these indigenous people. They were so beneficial. Yeah, yeah, they brought them Christianity. But then they also, I also remember seeing the graves of children. Oh, wow. And that's the part that stuck out to me. And like learning a little bit more of the story as an adult, I'm like, oh, it was some fuck yeah, that's, shit. Yeah, that's bullshit. Yeah. Uh, so, and here's why. Diseases introduced by the Spanish also took a toll, killing at least half the native population. By the time the first American settlers arrived in the Los Angeles area in 1841, their surviving Gabrieleño were scattered and working at subsistence level on Mexican ranches and virtually all of the original villages had disappeared Jesus. It was the same with the Chumash. When the first Spanish missionaries arrived, there were believed to be as many as 22,000 Chumash. However, their population, communities, and culture rapidly disappeared after the arrival of the Europeans. By 1906, there were only 42 <gasps> known survivors. Oh my God. Yeah. What a decline. That's they were decimated. Yeah. God damn, colonization really sucks. <laughs> Did we ever mention that before? Uh, <laughs> you know what? You heard it here, folks. Uh, <laughs> this has been Extra Extra with Beth and Wendy. <laughs> so uh, Los Angeles, California was founded in 1781 by a group of 44 Mexican settlers, and 26 of them were of African descent. Ah, nice! <laughs> Pio de Jesus Pico, who was of both African and American descent, was one of the first governors of the area that is known as the city of Los Angeles. In 1872, the first African Methodist Episcopal Church was established in Los Angeles when emancipated Black people began moving to the city in significant numbers towards the end of the Civil War. Mm. By the turn of the 20th century, Los Angeles was a vibrant, multi-ethnic environment with a population of 102,000, of which 3,100 were Black. By the way, first AME is still in Los Angeles. Oh, is it really? Me and old Whitey have been there. Yeah, I grew up in the AME church, so every time we go to a new town, 
out. I'm like, oh, I'll check it out. Check it um, out. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, I guess it, very historic uh, yeah. place. So locations in central, like Central Avenue became the focal point for black communities. Central Avenue was home to a vibrant jazz scene that attracted such greats as Louis Armstrong, Duke Ellington, Count Bassey, and ooh, Bessie Smith. Love it. Yeah. You love to see it. The Dunbar Hotel on Central Avenue, originally known as the Hotel Somerville, was completely financed and built solely by black people. Mm. Known as one of the finest black owned hotels in the nation, it would often host major events such as the NAACP National Conventions. They didn't. Nobody burned it down. No, <laughs> nobody not that, blew it not up. Not that I know of. Whoa! <laughs> look at that. Uh, so in the 1920s, Paul Revere Williams, a famous black architect credited for shaping Los Angeles, began designing homes and commercial buildings throughout the cities. But despite this, Paul Revere Williams was forbidden to live in many of the neighborhoods where he designed homes. What? This was because of racially restrictive covenants, which were contracts placed in the deeds of homes by white property owners or developers that barred purchasers from selling or renting to specific marginalized and underrepresented groups. L.A.'s racially restrictive covenants prevented these people from renting and buying property in certain areas, even after the courts made it illegal to do so in 1948 and the Civil Rights Act of 1964. In some cases, real estate brokers' licenses could be revoked for integrating a neighborhood. And the Federal Housing Administration, the FHA, flatly denied loans in areas not covered by covenants as a matter of policy. By the way, they still do that. Exclude African-Americans from um, loans. So as As a result, L.A. was geographically divided by ethnicity. By the 1940s, 95 percent of L.A. and Southern California housing was off limits to certain underrepresented groups. Restrictions were not limited to black people. They also included Asians and Mexicans, as well as Native Americans. Marginalized people who served in World War II or worked in L.A. defense industries returned to the city to even more discrimination in housing. Yeah, and also were often not allowed to take advantage advantage of the GI Bill, which many World War II veterans white ones were yeah. able to do and use to buy homes. Yeah, that's how my dad went to college. Yes, and go to school. Um, just uh, welcome to Culture Quarter. I don't know if you've noticed, but Beth and I have been using words like marginalized, underrepresented instead of the word minority. Uh, it's a word we try to stay away from if we can. So just wanted to point that out. Uh, so they were excluded from the suburbs, these marginalized and underrepresented folks, mostly black people, and restricted to East or South L.A., which included Watts and Compton. Uh, Before then, Compton was actually all white. And these real estate practices then and now severely restrict educational and economic opportunities available to underrepresented and marginalized groups. John Floyd Thomas Jr. was born during the Jim Crow era. Jim Crow was the name of the racial caste system, which operated primarily but not exclusively in southern and border states for almost 100 years between 1877 through the late 60s. Or arguably even beyond. And you know how they're talking about Jim Crow 2.0 with these new voting oh, yeah. restrictive yeah. laws that, that they've got coming yep. up? So Jim Crow was more than just a series of rigid anti-Black laws. It was a way of life which legitimized racism. Under Jim Crow, Black people were relegated to the status of second-class citizens, and all major societal institutions reflected and supported the oppression of Black people. I mean, Black people and white people couldn't play checkers together. They yeah. couldn't get married. If a 
white person was walking on the sidewalk, a black person had to get off. Black people couldn't look at white people in the eyes. Yeah, they had all these ridiculous and they were rules. Written yeah. down. Yes, yes, they it's, were. It's, it's fucking ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because of Jim Crow and the resulting economic circumstances for black people, plus racial terrorism, many black folks fled the South for the North during the Great Migration, which took place between 1910 to 1930. During the second Great Migration, which took place between 1940 to 1970, black people headed to the Northeast, Midwest, and the West. The Los Angeles demographics were already changing due to immigration from the Philippines, Mexico, Japan, Korea, and Southern and Eastern Europe. And we've all heard of the federal government's internment of Japanese Americans. Yeah. Right. And in uh, Los Angeles, about 70,000 Japanese Americans were interned. And because of this, this, it created sort of a void that led to the migration of Black residents into the city during that second Great Migration. Suburbs fighting integration often became sites of significant racial violence. White people resorted to bombing, firing into, and burning crosses on the lawns of Black family homes in areas south of Slauson Avenue. White Oof. gangs in Southgate and Huntington Park confronted Black people who had the audacity to travel in their area. That is really scary. Can Awful. you imagine coming home and there's like a giant flaming cross? Yeah, or a bunch of people yeah. just confronting you and yeah. yeah, awful. You're just trying to mind your beeswax. Yeah. Um, Fuck you guys. <laughs> hey, get out of here. Um, by the way, where do you buy giant crosses? Like I think you to have to make fire. them. Oh, I don't, okay. I don't think there's a burning cross store anywhere. No, you can't get them at Costco. No, uh, not that I've seen. <laughs> okay, well, do you, uh, do you remember that uh, old skit that um, Eddie Murphy did where he dresses up like a white person? Uh, yes, that so that's funny. a classic. <laughs> yeah. That is a classic. So uh, even even when I go into Costco, I don't see burning crosses on sale <laughs> in the in the back area where all the white people go. (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) That's a good one. That's a good one. Uh, So black folks soon overcrowded the South Central area of Los Angeles, where they were essentially boxed in. And by the 1970s, the area's density, shortage of manufacturing jobs and uh, increased crime branded the black communities as one large, notorious, violent enclave. But again, crime is a symptom of poverty. Right, right. True terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events. On our podcast, Disturbed, Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. 
Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. Get ready for your starring role in a thrilling adventure full of hidden clues, immersive scenes, danger, and romance. That's right, it's June's Journey, and you play June Parker, an amateur detective investigating a series of mysteries. Ooh, you'll put your powers of observation to the test, sharpen your sleuthing skills, find objects, and claim rewards. The visuals are fire. It's like a party for your eyeballs. (laughs) As you play this thrilling adventure full of hidden clues, immersive scenes with danger and romance in full force. Whether you're craving a good mystery or just need to get away for a while, June's Journey is the perfect game for you. It really is a sweet escape. I like to play when I need a mental pick-me-up. There is a detective in all of us. Find your inner detective. Download June's Journey free today on the Apple App Store or Google Play. Now we are going to get into the killer's early life. Boy, oh boy, have we got a juicy one for (laughs) you. Here we go. Get ready. Buckle your (laughs) seatbelts. John Floyd Thomas Jr. was born in Los Angeles on July 26, 1936. His mother died when he was 12 years old, and he was then raised by his aunt and a godmother. Unfortunately, that's the extent of our knowledge about his early life. Feel free to speculate about why he ended up being so (laughs) fucked up. Uh, So now we're going to get into the timeline. So in 1956, Thomas joined the U.S. Air Force while stationed at Nellis Air Force Base in Nevada, a superior noted that Thomas was regularly late and slovenly in appearance. Um, I'm guessing that's like sloppy. Yeah, sloppy. Yeah, he he probably just, you know, I I talked about how I was in the Civil Air Patrol before. I would always get in trouble for like my uh, uniform wasn't ironed right. I didn't use enough starch or my shoes weren't shined enough. Always, always. So I imagine that's probably what was going on. He just wasn't wasn't able to he wasn't uh, perfect. Yeah, he wasn't hmm. able to be perfect. Yeah. Oh, okay. So <laughs> according to his military records, he received a dishonorable discharge. And my understanding is that he was in the Air Force for less than a year. The following year, in March of 1957, Thomas raped a woman in South Los Angeles. Five days later, he attempted to rape another woman. Whoa. Then in June of 1957, he attempted yet another rape oh. when he climbed into an elderly woman's bed and ordered her to be quiet, but was shot by the woman's son-in-law after she screamed for help. Wow. 
That's good. Yeah. That's good. Un aplauso. So though injured, Thomas made it back to his nearby apartment where his wife promptly called an ambulance. They later divorced. <laughs> uh, his suspicious wound led to his arrest for attempted rape. A plea deal was offered by the Los Angeles County prosecutor and Thomas was convicted only of burglary. He was sentenced to six years in the California state prison system. And when he was released, Two parole violations sent him back to prison until 1966. I'm going back to prison, prison, <laughs> prison. I'm going back to prison. I don't think so. <laughs> After Thomas was released from prison in 1966, a wave of rapes and murders began to plague the west side of the city of Los Angeles within a 20-mile radius. The perp was dubbed the West Side Rapist, and he attacked older white ladies in their homes in neighborhoods from Hollywood in the north to Englewood in the south. Long Beach, Inglewood. Uh, <laughs> so victims ranged in age from the 50s to the 90s. Wow. Yeah. L.A. journalist. So vulnerable, right? Yeah. Um, L.A. journalist Bella Stumbo wrote in December of 1975 that the serenity of the neighborhoods where the victims lived, quote, had been so grotesquely invaded by that elusive maniac now accused of sexually assaulting at least 33 old women and murdering perhaps 10 of them, that residents lived in small colonies of terror, unquote. Whoa, wow. get this woman a, a Peabody or a yeah. Pulitzer. She, the way she uses those words yeah, really, really brings you into it. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The killer would break into the victim's homes at night, then rape and choke them until they passed out or died. Before he left, he would cover their faces with pillows, blankets, and or clothing. We'll be going over the crimes that Thomas was convicted of, but he is suspected of many more. During this time, a total of 17 women were killed and found with pillows or blankets over their faces. The crimes led to the formation of a special police task force in the mid-1970s. But, oh boy, oh boy, they must have been so busy yeah. <laughs> because yeah. there was so much Yeah, it was, it was nuts during this yeah. time. Yeah, so in November of 1972, Ethel Sokoloff, 68, was murdered at her home in the mid-Wilshire area of Los Angeles. Ethel, a retired school administrator, was found semi-nude and dead inside the trunk of her car two blocks from her apartment. The motive of the murder appeared to have been of a sexual nature. Cora Perry, a 79-year-old Lennox resident, was widowed and had been for so long she'd lived alone for almost half her life. She was spunky and independent and looked young for her age. Aww. She was very social and still drove around town going to different club meetings every week. She'd been a travel agent in Beverly Hills and was an avid traveler and photographer. Oh, sounds lovely. Yeah. So on September 20th, 1975, Cora Perry was murdered. Her body was discovered by her neighbors and landlords, a husband and wife, who became concerned when Cora did not bring in the morning paper. It was something she habitually did every morning before 9 a.m. so she could read it with her morning coffee. Her body was found by her neighbors lying on her bed covered up with pillows and clothes with only her feet sticking out. Her face had been covered up with a shower cap. The husband and wife who found her were so traumatized, particularly the husband, he actually had to be hospitalized for a time. Wow. And they moved away shortly afterwards. See, that's interesting. Um, it's just an interesting point because uh, people don't talk about the trauma that people, folks might suffer who find a friend find body. Yeah. yeah. Find a friend. Yes. Who's, um, who's been murdered. Yeah. That, yeah. I can only imagine how I can uh, literally only imagine right. how awful that must be. 
Mm-hmm. So in April 1976, retired school teacher Maybelle Hudson was attacked in her garage as she arrived home in Inglewood. Inglewood? The 80-year-old woman was beaten, sexually assaulted, and strangled to death. Her great-nephew, Bob Kistner, said of his aunt, quote, Maybelle Hudson was just the sweetest thing you'd ever want to see. A schoolteacher, an old-time schoolteacher, grew up with my grandmother in Sioux City, Iowa, always had wanted me to become a teacher, unquote. Kistner became a cop instead, joining the Long Beach Police Department. Um, he, I was going to say that the, the police departments in Los Angeles uh, don't have the greatest reputation. Right. But uh, this guy was a 20-year-old, 21-year-old rookie when his great aunt was murdered. Over the years, he'd occasionally call his colleagues at the LAPD, even after he retired, asking about Maybell's case. The answer was always the same. No arrests. Two months after Maybell Hudson was murdered in June of 1976, 65-year-old Miriam McKinley was also ambushed in her garage. She was also beaten, sexually assaulted, and strangled in her Inglewood home. That October, 56-year-old Inglewood resident Evelyn Bunner suffered a similar fate. She was also attacked while either entering or exiting her garage, then beaten, sexually assaulted, and strangled to death. In February of 1976, retired school administrator Elizabeth McCune, 67, returned home from an event at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion. She was attacked after parking her car at her home and then was raped and strangled. Later that evening, a witness saw someone driving McCune's car erratically near her home. Another witness heard a dragging noise coming from her apartment. It went on for 30 minutes. Wow. Neither alerted police. And was 911 a thing? No, not back okay. then. Okay. Um, I, I think that was implemented in the late 70s, early 80s. After like Kitty that. Genovese. Yeah. Sometime after that. Yeah. <laughs> so um, back then you would call the operator. Just dial zero? Yeah, you would dial zero and then tell them what you needed and then they would uh, connect you. Oh, look at that. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I see. But they're, they're, you know, they're not trained to uh, take those kinds of calls like 911 operators are. So right. that's why the 911 system is so, so good. Yeah. Well, thank you. Oh, gee. Of You're welcome. Crime. I just, uh, I this... remember those days. <laughs> uh... <laughs> <laughs> because my parents always told me, you know, if something happened to dial zero. Oh, really? Yep. Oh, wow. Okay. It sounds, I mean, you, you were so crisp in your delivery and so uh, <laughs> confident that it was almost like you were reading a script. Nope. That was all from the dome. Amazing. Yep, How, did from the dome. How did she do it? How did she do it? So uh, Elizabeth McCune's body was found on February 18th, 1976, half naked in her 65 Chevelle, not far from her small apartment in a neighborhood between Fox Hills and Westchester. For homicide detective Larry Manchester, his very first case was that of Elizabeth McCune. Way back in the 70s, police rarely... (laughs) (laughs) Now we're going to go way back. Uh, So back in the day, in the 70s, police rarely worried about saving trace evidence. But after reading about a newfangled DNA science, (laughs) Detective uh, Manchester made the decision to start collecting it. Influenced by the magazine article, Manchester insisted that the Los Angeles County autopsy technicians save as much trace evidence evidence found at the McCune crime scene as possible. He has been described as quirky, and I think everybody thought he was a big weirdo for wanting this, (laughs) but his foresight 
was later proven to be instrumental in solving the case. Yeah. Now, I don't usually do this, but... <laughs> This detective uh, yeah. for using DNA in the 70s? Yeah. I mean, um, that's amazing. Yeah, very cool. Yeah. At the time of the murders, police realized that there was probably a serial killer on the loose, but they didn't have the technology to find him. The LAPD questioned several suspects, but Thomas was not among them. During this period, Thomas was employed as a get this social worker. Wow. Hospital employee and personal electronic salesman. Wow. That's a social yeah, worker. That's social worker. That's incredible. Now, the attacks appeared to stop in 1978. Funnily enough, that year, Thomas was convicted and sentenced to state prison for the rape of an elderly woman, Mrs. Stellern. Uh, her first name has never been released. Now, during the brutal attack, Mrs. Stellern's ankle was forcibly broken. The next morning, a neighbor said he had seen a black man park his car and walk around the neighborhood, entering and then leaving Mrs. Stellern's apartment courtyard. The neighbor had a habit of writing down unfamiliar license plate numbers. That is a very interesting habit. Yeah. Uh, the plate number <laughs> was registered to the then 41-year-old salesman, John Floyd Thomas Jr., who lived nearby. When police searched his car, they found dark clothing and a ski mask. Yikes. And he was charged with, yeah, Miss Stellan's rape. Even so, he got married. <laughs> Whoa, okay. Uh, so wow. he's being charged with rape, but he got married to a woman named Colette Webb on okay. April 5th, 1978. Oh, um, okay. and guess what? They later divorced. <laughs> Get out of here. You're you're kidding me. Nope. Shucking. <laughs> then then on August 17th, 1978, a jury convicted him of rape, burglary and mayhem mm -hmm. for viciously breaking Mrs. Stallone's ankle. And Thomas was sent to state prison. Mayhem, huh? Okay. Mayhem. Um, by the way, you know, I was going to say he got married, but we didn't have Google back then, right? Right. So he couldn't, like, his new bride couldn't, couldn't have, like, Google Googled yeah. or found anything out about his background. Right. He was released in 1983, and Thomas then moved to Chino, where a new wave of rapes and killings began in the Pomona Valley area. This time, the perp was dubbed the Southland Strangler. Over the next six years, Los Angeles County Sheriff's detectives would investigate five murders of older women in Claremont, which was majority white. During this time, Thomas worked in Pomona as a peer counselor at a hospital. A peer counselor. I mean, yeah, the <laughs> the jobs. was. I mean, was Jeffrey Dahmer ever a camp counselor no, or a teacher? No, no, he He was a big failure. <laughs> okay. Uh, what about Ted Bundy? Was Ted Bundy ever like a counselor or therapist? Oh, yeah, or actually, Ted Bundy. Bundy, he worked at a suicide crisis line. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. OK, so that's wow. Uh, that's how he met Anne Rule, who wrote okay. the book about him and became uh -huh. a big true crime writer. Uh, they oh. worked together at this uh, suicide crisis line. Wow. We kazowie. So um, so it's not unusual. Yeah. Well, it <laughs> is for a serial killer. I think it is unusual for a serial killer to function in society as well as this guy did, Thomas. At this high a level. Yes. Right? Yes. Okay. I mean, he okay. had a career, you know? Yeah. He had lots of them. <laughs> <laughs> the killer claim rep. Uh, <laughs> Um, so in 1983, police discovered the partially nude body of 85-year-old Isabel Askew in a vineyard near Ontario International Airport, east of Los Angeles. 
She had been reported missing from the Claremont apartment where she lived with her adult daughter more than a week earlier. She reportedly did not drive and had trouble getting around, so police did not know how she got from Claremont to Ontario. Yeah, somebody took her there. Yeah. Her cause of death could not be determined because of the condition of her body, but investigators later suspected that she might also have been one of Thomas's victims. However, they were never able to prove a link. That detective wasn't on the case to save the DNA? Yeah. (laughs) Probably, yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, almost three years later, her daughter, 56-year-old Adrienne Askew, was found strangled in the same West Bonita Avenue apartment where she lived with her mother. Three years later, she was found lying face up with bedding pulled over her head, and she had been sexually assaulted. Now, so he's returning to the scene of the crime. Right. Which is so brazen. Yeah, fucked up. Uh-huh. Developmentally disabled, Adrienne was a retired school crossing guard and librarian's assistant, and her brother felt tremendous amounts of guilt for allowing his sister to live alone after their mother's death, and he unfortunately passed away before Thomas was cut. In March of 1987, Thomas became a father to a baby boy. He and his girlfriend, the mother of his child, married in April 1989 and returned to Los Angeles, where Thomas started out in the mailroom of the State Compensation Insurance Fund. Then the cycle of killing stopped. Hmm. Thomas later became an insurance adjuster handling workers' compensation claims at the State Compensation Insurance Fund. He also found religion, and after the advent of the internet, he would offer and email inspirational Bible passages to colleagues. It just, his his switch just turned off. Just turned, yeah. Wow. Uh, people can change. <laughs> Co- <laughs> Co- co-workers at his office in Glendale described Thomas as quiet but friendly. They said his job mostly involved paperwork. According to co-worker Earl Ofari Hutchison, quote, the man that we engaged with was always very pleasant, very personable. We never, ever saw him lose his temper. Never. He always had a pleasant smile, always had a kind word. I knew Thomas was quite a bit older than myself. I used to ask him what was the secret to his youthful appearance. He'd always laugh with that smile of his and essentially say, just good living. Oh, no, no, he did (laughs) not say that. Okay. (laughs) Another co-worker described him as a quote unquote doll who loved his children. She said he was, quote, Really sweet. Everybody knew him. Unquote. Wow. Now, according to one coworker, quote, he was always with women, a circle of female admirers, because he was so congenial. And he and his wife must have divorced because on July 1st, 1995, Thomas got married again. What's that for? Yep. This is the fourth one. Wow. That we know this, of. There could that be we, more. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Good point. This time to a woman named Carolyn Moret. So now we're going to get into the investigation and the arrest. Hit it, Beth. In November of 2000. In one, the LAPD created the Cold Case Homicide Unit to reopen about 9,000 unsolved murders going back to 1960 using emerging state and federal DNA databases. As part of the review process, detectives screened the unsolved murder of Ethel Sokoloff. The Cold Case Detectives review of the case revealed that there was biological evidence within the victim's sexual assault evidence kit and that this evidence had never been analyzed for the presence of foreign DNA. And in 2002, Elizabeth McCune's murder case was reopened, which also contained biological evidence. A male DNA profile was developed in each of these cases and was uploaded into California's CODIS database. 
bank. And in September 2004, a case-to-case DNA match was made linking the male DNA profile from the Sokolov case to the male DNA profile identified in the McCune murder. Although the DNA profiles matched each other, the name of the offender was not identified in the database. Over the next five years, detectives developed 14 suspects. One by one, though, their DNA ruled them out. The state of California has required sex offenders to register since 1947, which was the year of the Black Dahlia murder case. And while investigating the Grim Sleeper murders in the fall of 2008, a special database search of L.A.'s 5,212 registered sex offenders was created. The Grim Sleeper murders occurred between 1985 and 2007, with a 14-year break between 1988 to 2002, Hence the name, The Grim Sleeper, because of the break. Now, the perp was eventually identified by a DNA to be a man by the name of Lonnie David Franklin Jr. But during this time, it was also revealed that there were multiple serial killers working the south side of Los Angeles. Another one was Chester Turner, who we covered in episode six. Yep. It was determined that 1,500 sex offenders fit the rough description of the Grim Sleeper, a black man who would now be middle-aged or older. 92 of the 1,500 had never been cheek swabbed for DNA, as was now required by law. And one of them was Thomas. Mm. So per Detective Diane Webb, the woman who came up with the idea for the database search, quote, most people think registered sex offenders are under some formal supervision, unquote, but only about a quarter are under parole oversight or other direct supervision. On October 22, 2008, Thomas reported to LAPD's Southwest Division to be tested for DNA as part of Webb's 92-man sweep. The meeting was uneventful, says Officer Robert Lanigan. Quote, it was pretty boring, really, unquote. He had to have known it like the gig was up, right? Like, yeah, you would think so. <laughs> I mean, by now, Jurassic Park has come out. Everybody knows what DNA can do. Everybody knows about DNA. Exactly. Yeah. The only thing I can think is maybe he thought they didn't have any DNA. I mean, they're looking for the Grim Sleeper, right? Oh, which was right. more recent. So mm-hmm, maybe mm-hmm. he's thinking there's there's no DNA from no all way. the way back then. From the 70s? Yeah. Get out of here. Wow. Okay. No, according to Langan's, uh, Lanigan's partner, Amber McDonald, quote, he probably would have been the last person we would have suspected. He looked professional and was very pleasant to deal with, unquote. On March 27, 2009, the California Department of Justice DNA Laboratory notified detectives that they had a DNA match in the evidence from the Sokoloff murder. The offender was identified as none other than John Floyd Thomas Jr. Whoa, okay. And uh, Thomas was 72 years old by then. He was 72 years old. Yep. Good grief. Uh, he's so close to like the end of life, right? <laughs> like he probably was thinking, man, I got away with it. Like Whitey Bulger, right? Wasn't right. he like in his 80s when? Yeah, uh, yeah when they got... busted him. Yeah. yeah. See, you see what happens when you do crimes. Uh, they never, <laughs> you, you can't get away with nothing these days. Uh, so a review of Thomas's criminal history re- revealed that he was arrested a number of times between 1955 and 1978. His criminal convictions consisted of multiple burglaries,
activities, many of which involved sexual assaults of his victims. But other than an arrest for prostitution in 1993, Thomas did not have any other arrest records in the latter part of his life. So he must have been a John who got arrested with a sex worker. Right. Within a day, undercover officers began surveillance on Thomas at his home in South Los Angeles. He was living just a few blocks from the original 1957 sexual attacks he'd committed. Mm. And on March 31st, 2009, investigators were told that Thomas's DNA matched a total of five murders. Whoa. Yeah, you love to see it. So he <laughs> he was arrested later that day. And on April 2nd, he was charged with murder in connection with the deaths of Ethel Sokoloff and Elizabeth McCune. At the time, detectives described Thomas as one of the region's most prolific serial killers, saying that he remained a suspect in at least 10 to 15 additional slayings based on the dates of the crimes and his M.O. So now we're going to get into the trial. What do you got, Beth? Well, initially, Thomas pleaded not guilty to the murders. But why? <laughs> <laughs> well, probably because that's just what you do at first. Okay. okay. <laughs> but on April 1st, 2011, after a plea deal was struck, Thomas pleaded guilty to the murders of Elizabeth McCune, Ethel Sokoloff, Cora Perry, Maybell Hudson, Miriam McKinley, Evelyn Bunner, and Adrian Eskew. Tracy Michaels, the great niece of Elizabeth McCune, who lived with her as a teenager, told the LA Times, quote, he has been my my worst nightmare. For me, the death penalty would have been too easy, unquote. Yeah, I agree. I always think the death penalty is too easy. I always, you know, I agree that it is. But I'm going to be honest with you. I'm surprised more people don't, like, ask for it. You oh, know? just like, like uh, just kill me now. Yeah, <laughs> just kill me now. I mean, I've, 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 I fucked up. Yeah. You know, prison's not very fun. Uh, I'm never going to get out anyway. So, you know what? Yeah. I, 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 just I don't a, know. It's, it's a thought I've had. And um, I don't know why I'm like this. The Lord is still working on me. (laughs) Elizabeth McCune's great niece, Tracy Michaels, asked Los Angeles County Superior Court Judge George G. Lomelli to, quote, remove any comfort from this man's life. Make the rest of his life feel like what he's made our lives feel like, unquote. Mm. As part of the plea deal, the judge gave Thomas seven life sentences, one without the opportunity of parole. According to Deputy District Attorney Rachel Moser Green, the death penalty was not really relevant in this case because Thomas would probably die in prison during his appeals given his age. Quote, this provides certainty and finality for surviving family members who lived with this for so long, unquote. Yeah, that's another good point because uh, whenever somebody who's been convicted of something gets the death penalty, the family members of the victims have to go through the long drawn out process of appeals as well. You know? Oh, you forget about that. Yeah. So if they get life without the opportunity of parole, it's over. Done. Brush your hands. You can walk away. Oh, wow. You know, you did it again, OG. (laughs) I didn't know that. Thank you. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Uh, Well, uh, now we're going to get into where are they now? Well, Thomas is turning 85 years old on the 26th of this month, July. Wow. Okay. And he's currently being housed at the California Department of Corrections Healthcare Facility in Stockton, California. So sounds like he's he's uh, his health is not, not great. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, well, <laughs> what can, you know, you do the crime, yep. uh, you're going to die. Yeah. Not, not to, uh, too sad about that. <laughs> no, no, not one, not one bit. Uh, how about rest and piss in advance, <laughs> John Floyd. <laughs> uh, so now we're going to get into what we think made him snap as well as our takeaways. What are your thoughts, Beth? I can't wait to hear. Well, this guy kind of reminds me of BTK. Okay. Cause BTK committed horrific crimes, but then later settled down and stopped killing. Mm-hmm. Um, but BTK, as far as I know, was described by coworkers as sort of a asshole control freak. <laughs> oh, okay. Not pleasant. Like. No. And Thomas, on the other hand, was described as sweet and kind of beloved. It's yeah. weird. Yeah. yeah. And Thomas, quote unquote, found religion later in life. And BTK was very in- involved in his church. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. And I, it occurs to me, and I always thought BTK uh, may have been hiding behind religion like i'm a religious guy i would never do something like that you uh, know mm-hmm, whereas mm-hmm. maybe thomas used it to find forgiveness for his crimes i don't know oh. it's just a thought that i had because of their different personality That's deep. yeah That's how deep. they presented yeah. to mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. my understanding is that btk stopped killing because he wanted to keep his family and his wife was starting to get upset about his behaviors oh. um like he was away from home at weird hours and Mm -hmm. she caught him dressing up in women's clothes and he just oh I saw that in the movie Mindhunter or the show right so he actually did that yeah and so she caught him doing some weird things and and uh, I think she was gonna leave him and he decided he made a conscious decision not to kill anymore or not to isn't that funny indulge in these behaviors yeah no more oreo cookies like that like that's it i'm done it's that yeah yeah that's it i'm going to stop smoking like it's (laughs) yeah that's that's what murder is for right for these guys right yeah okay and and maybe something similar happened with thomas he seemed to stop committing crimes after his son was born Uh um i don't know but uh btk uh, said he never stopped thinking um, and fantasizing about his crimes and i don't I don't know if that's the same for Thomas. He's not been as forthcoming as BTK, who runs off at the mouth and thrives on all the attention that he gets. So Does I don't know. He now? Yeah, he you know loves what? the attention. I, I, you know what? And I remember his daughter saying something about that at CrimeCon. Oh, did she? I thought she did. She, and, may, and she may have. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, wow, read, though. I read her book and I also oh. read other stuff about him. So, yeah, mm-hmm. he's he's a narcissistic uh, kind of guy. He loves Hello. the attention. Yeah, yeah but that's interesting john floyd does not seem the like same a nu- yeah right yeah but he did stop killing and uh it, it seemed to be related to uh, and it, it also could have been because he he got that sweet job you know right yeah <laughs> yeah we're moving know. on up <laughs> doing claims <laughs> For so, workers' <laughs> compensation in, the in LA. <laughs> so a lot of folks think it's impossible for serial killers to stop killing, and I've heard that o- over and over again. Yeah, and the, and they say that BTK was really unusual, and and I was actually one of those people that thought really? they couldn't stop. But we've come across several cases like this, we and have. I no longer think that it's that unusual. The Golden State Killer is another one who stopped right? killing. Later in life. And yes. uh, one yes. hypothesis 
this is that they age out as they get older. Maybe they uh-huh. are no longer as driven. Yeah. Like maybe it's hormones. What is yeah. it? I don't know. You know, but like I, murder menopause. Right. For- exactly. <laughs> They're like, yeah, you know, I just don't need yeah. that anymore. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, but it happens. And we're learning more and more about these cases because of DNA, I think, because that's how the Golden State Killer was found. Yeah. That's how this guy was found. Uh That's how the Grim Sleeper was found. You Uh know, all Uh of these, all of these guys, um, we would not have known about except for DNA. Yeah. You know what? That's why I love DNA so much. And unfortunately, we don't know enough about Thomas's early life to form a hypothesis about what may have caused him to become a serial rapist and murderer. Yeah. His mom did die when he was 12. Mm-hmm. And there's no mention of a father. So that was probably a factor. Yeah. He was raised by an aunt and a godmother. And who knows how he was treated. Mm-hmm. Um, he obviously had resentment towards white women. I don't mm-hmm. know if he chose what older white women because he was fixated on them or if it was just because they are a vulnerable group of people. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it does make me wonder if his godmother was white. Oh, that's a good question. Yeah. And I, um, I recent, I, hello, season two of Signs of a Psychopath is back. Oh, y'all. yeah, yeah. And um, they were, t- they were talking about a serial killer who, when he was about 12, he was masturbating and was severely punished for mm-hmm. it. And the combination of that sex, that sexual experience and the severe the punishment. Violence, yeah. yeah fucked him up. So yeah. He, yeah. he turned into a rapist murderer. And so I wonder if like something if like that happened, something yeah. like that might have happened to right. this guy. Because right. he definitely had a type. Yes. Um, and he definitely raped. A yeah. lot. Uh, <laughs> a lot. <laughs> a lot. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I, I was going to read a quote. There was a criminal profiler named uh, Pat Brown uh, said that John Floyd Thomas was not psychotic. He was a psychopath, which explained why he was able to do these crimes. And do re mi fa sola ti kiki around life as a regular <laughs> schmegular person. Uh, yeah, that's that's <laughs> always like baffles me. Like how? how? Yeah. I I know. I'm weird. Oh, man. Yeah. Different breed. Um, And uh, I was going to say it was um, just this time period in the United States was wild. Yeah. The amount of serial killers who were around. And um, I also thought of this black man who was raping all these white women as like, America's worst nightmare. And yeah. Even though it was a little bit before, this was in the 80s. Um, and it made me think of the Willie Horton ad. Um, oh, right, right. Yep. Yeah. Clinton. Yeah. Yeah. And um, even though it was uh, the Willie Horton ad, I think was in 88 and he stopped killing and, and raping in 86. It just made me think that that um, sort of. Uh, yeah, that's that's the climate. Right. That I right. think the, um, the country it was. was in. It was. Yeah. 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 I remember. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's all I got. Um, this guy is, uh, what did I say at the beginning? Uh, anyway, basura. (laughs) 
Hi, I'm Sean McCabe. And I'm Carrie McCabe. We are, well, married, obviously, (laughs) but we're also obsessed with the darker side of things. True crime stories, alien abductions, poltergeists. If it leaves you scratching your head and keeping those lights on at night, we want to hear about it. That's why we host the podcast Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Every week, we bring our listeners a true story guaranteed to send chills down your spine, from history's most brutal serial killers to the mystery of spontaneous human combustion. Yep, lots of these stories leave unanswered questions behind, and you'll get to poke through the rubble of the evidence with a hardened skeptic and... Someone whose mind is more open to fun. Yeah, that's what I was going to (laughs) say. You can find Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie wherever you get your podcasts, and on social media at Ain't It Scary. Come play with us. So uh, now we're going to get into how not to get murdered. So if you love true crime and you don't want to die, here's a tip for you. (laughs) This segment is not intended to be victim blaming. We thought of this segment because I read somewhere that a lot of people listen to true crime because they want to know what they can do to be safer. This is not meant to blame the victims. It's just learning from other people's experiences. Mm, What do you have for us today, Beth? Well, uh, these are some tips from a booklet produced by the Escondido Police Department called Personal Safety Tips for Older Adults. Okay. I'm just going to read a few of them because there's, there's a lot of them. And so we'll we'll link to it in our show notes. But okay. here's a few. Make sure your house is secure. Always mm-hmm. secure outside doors, sliding glass doors and windows. Okay. Install easy to use deadbolt locks. Okay. Keep garage and basement doors locked at all times. Don't mm. leave your windows open at night. Instead, use floor or ceiling fans for air circulation. Uh, even in the summer? I'm yeah, kidding. even in the summer. <laughs> I don't want to get murdered. I'm listening. <laughs> I have this fantastic fan by my bed. It's like a, a tower fan. Oh, Costco style? Yeah, it keeps uh. me so cold at night. I love it. Yeah, get oh, one of those. Yeah, I, I <laughs> shared a room with Beth at CrimeCon, and she was trying to kill me with the freezing <laughs> temperatures in the room. Oh, I love it. So you like it really cold. Real when cold. It, when, yeah, yep. I get it. Yep. I get it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, here comes your next tip. You ready? Okay. Yep. Don't attach an ID tag to your key ring. Like with your name? Yeah, just in case you lose them. But if you lose them, then people can find you and say, here are your keys. Right. But they can also go to your house and open your door. And kill you. Kill you. Yeah. Right. Okay. (laughs) Thank you. That makes sense. If other people, such as previous tenants, could still have keys that fit, change the locks. Also, install new locks if you move to a new home or lose your key. Don't give keys to workmen as they can easily make copies. Same if you get your car fixed and you have to leave your car keys with the mechanics. Only leave them your car keys and keep your house keys to yourself. Oh, you think they would? Oh my God! If it was, I mean, um, if, probably if, it'd be fine. But you, you know, you never know. You get these, that one weirdo. Oh yeah. My God. Wow. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. Noted. <laughs> when you're away from home, leave on some lights and the radio or the TV so it looks like someone is at home, just so you don't get burglarized. Mm-hmm. Draw the curtains and blinds at night so people can't watch you from the outside, which is super creepy. Uh huh. Uh huh. Truman Show. <laughs> Make friends with your neighbors or at least know your neighbors so you can watch out for each other and report suspicious activity to the police department. 
Right. Okay. Never open the door to strangers or let them know that you're home alone. Ask service people for an ID before you open the door. If someone asks to use your phone, make the call for them. Never let a stranger into your home. And my last tip is consider getting a dog. Oh, fuck yes. By the way, that that if somebody is knocking on your door to use, that's the beginning of so many horror movies or suspense. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right? Um, yep. That's a good one. So you make the call for it. Yeah. You tell them, who do you need me to call? 911? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm calling mm-hmm. right now. Well, thank you so much. I feel safer already. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so now we're going to get into the shout out portion of our show where we shout out any content by any marginalized or other groups, other underrepresented groups, um, or any true crime goodies. So I've got both, but I just wanted to shout out Signs of a Psychopath, which I already did because boy, boy, I love that show. <laughs> yeah, it it's a great so show. fascinating. I don't even know what network it's on. Is it ID? I watched it. So let me, let me look I, I want to say it's on Discovery Plus. Signs of a Psychopath. Prime? It might be on Prime. Okay. See, Signs of a Psychopath on Prime. That's where I watched it. So, and then um, also Summer of Soul. Uh, it is on Hulu. Oh, I saw the ad for that. It looks good. It is amazing. There was a whole ass black Woodstock. Wow. That nobody has talked about about. for 50 years. Okay, I'm definitely going to have to watch that. It's so good. Stevie Wonder was playing the drums. Oh, my god! I had no idea he could do that. (laughs) Nina Simone was there. It was amazing. It's just a really good celebration of um, music by by Black people. people. So, uh, man, check it out. What do you got? Um, So I wanted to shout out AJ and the Queen on Netflix. Oh, cool. Okay. So uh, it it stars RuPaul, which Uh I love. Yes. And he he plays a gay man who does drag for a living and drives around the country in an RV going from show to show. And he winds up taking care of a kid named AJ who is wise beyond years due to, let's say, uh, poor parenting. Oh, okay. And the two of them together are really cute. Mm-hmm. It's funny and it's sad and uplifting. Plus they're drag shows. So <laughs> Yes. Yes, Hyundai. <laughs> and unfortunately I'm late to the game. It came out over a year ago. I just didn't know about it. Mm-hmm. Um and it's not being renewed for a second season, which no! is a shame. I know. Oh, that you know what that is uh, that is a shame yeah. well okay so it's on netflix yes and uh i can't wait to check it out yes what else you got and while we're here i also watched dragging the classics the brady bunch on paramount plus <laughs> wait what's that Okay, so they recreate one episode of the 70s sitcom, The Brady Bunch. And they, okay. they recreate it word word for word, like they, they do the entire script. Okay, <laughs> what? And it stars drag queens from RuPaul's Drag Race. No! <laughs> yeah. Oh my God, I cannot... Are you serious? Yes. This is amazing! It's so fun. <laughs> Bianca Del Rio plays Carol Brady. Uh-huh. Candy Muse plays Cindy. Nina West plays Alice the Maid and they got a lot of the original Brady's in on the act too and um, really yeah Mike Lookinland who played Bobby Brady he Uh again plays Bobby who's supposed to 
be like eight or something, but he's 60 <laughs> and he has a beard. Jesus. <laughs> it's so good. I mean, it's, I loved it. Oh my god! It's, it's weird, but I love it. <laughs> I, I don't even, how did you even come across I, that? I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I just did. <laughs> wow. That's amazing. And be sure to stick around for the end credits to see some bloopers. <laughs> Okay. Well, that sounds like fun. So uh, real quick, again, that's Summer of Soul on Hulu, Signs of a Psychopath on Amazon Prime, and AJ and the Queen on Netflix, as well as Dragging the Classics, The Brady Bunch on Paramount. Oh, my God. I can't wait for that one. Uh, (laughs) So um, this has been fun, but we have to go. So in the meantime, where can the people find us, Beth? Our website is FruitLoopsPod.com. Our Facebook page is Fruit Loops Pod, And our discussion group is Fruit Loops Pod Discussion on Facebook. We are also on Twitter and Instagram at Fruit Loops Pod. And links to our sources will be in our footnotes. If you want to support the show, you can send us a donation on the Cash App. Just Google Fruit Loops Pod Cash App. Or you can become a monthly patron through our Podbean patron page. This will help us pay for things like our website and pod hosting. There's no minimum and no commitment. Even a dollar would help. And as always, we have merch for sale on our website. That is very true. And this is a weekly podcast and new episodes drop every Thursday. So until next time, look alive, y'all. It's crazy out there. the comedy horror podcast that holds weekly gatherings around the campfire. Let me tell you what you're going to get. You're going to hear stories about demonic possessions, prison stabbings, skinwalkers, glitches in the matrix, cult leaders, missing 411, night marchers, Operation Paperclip, Mesopotamian devil worship, and so many monsters it'll give Kanye West a runaway for his money. Pop and meme culture also aren't off topic. A camp where laughs and scares are constantly competing for first place. We're just a group of friends trying to bust each other's balls, find the best stories, and expand the circle in the process. 3AM, the comedy horror podcast, not for the faint or fragile of heart. Let's go. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing Podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery 
and I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify and all the usual suspects.